Prayer, the Old Testament way. Next on Graceful Truth with Pastor Steve Converse. From Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City, welcome to today's broadcast of Graceful Truth with our teacher and pastor, Steve Converse, who continues with our series, Old Testament Examples of Prayer. It's always marvelous to go back to God's Word to see these examples to encourage us in our own prayer life. Lord knows we need it a time or two. As prayer is one of those challenging issues in most of our lives as believers in Christ. So join us for a wonderful look at some Old Testament examples of prayer. With this edition of Graceful Truth, our teacher and pastor, Steve Converse. See, the Bible says that, you know what our goodness amounts to? Filthy rags. Filthy rags in the sight of a holy God. In his sermon, The Justice of God and the Damnation of Sinner, Sinners, the works of Jonathan Edwards, he argues that since God is infinitely perfect and holy, being any sin against him is an infinitely horrible offense that justly deserves infinite punishment. He shows how all sinners tend to have too high a view of themselves and too low a view of the infinite perfection and holiness of God. And by the time you get to the end of the sermon, he has powerfully shown that none, none are deserving of heaven. And that God would be totally, perfectly just and damning us all to hell. We forget that. But in his mercy, in his grace, he has made a way through the Lord Jesus Christ to save all who put their faith, their trust in him. You have to understand that. And so Abraham began his encounter with the Lord with an overinflated view of the people of Sodom. Oh, there's got to be at least 50 there, Lord. No, 45, 40, 30, 35. Come on, there's got to be 10. No. As it was, there was only barely one. Righteous man in that, that whole city. And you know what? As you grow closer to God in prayer, you know what he does? He reveals to you not only his infinite holiness, but he really shows you the, the horribleness of your sin. He shows you what a gracious act it was that he would save somebody like you or me. And we begin to understand that there's none righteous, not even one. Sing a little chorus. The scripture says, if the Lord should count iniquities, none could stand before him. So when you begin to pray that God would mercifully call out from this sinful world a people for his own glory, you begin to understand that it's God's work. It's not us going out with tracks trying to convert people. It's God doing that work through us. And we need to rely on his power and his word and his truth. But you know what? We still have to go. We're called to that. And as he saw the sin of Sodom, he cried out for his mercy on our land that he would not enter into judgment. We think of the United States of America. We need to pray for our country. We don't give up on it. We pray for it. Pray for our leaders. Pray that somehow the truth of the gospel would penetrate their hearts because the judge of all earth 
always deals justly. Thirdly, there, God's purpose is handed down through the families of his elect. Verse 19 says, For I have chosen him in order that he may command, look at this, his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice in order that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. See the interplay here between God's sovereign, gracious covenant with Abraham and the requirement of Abraham to do what God has called him to do so that his covenant promises would be fulfilled. He didn't say, Abraham, okay, I chose you. All you got to do is sit back in your arms of grace and don't worry about a thing. I got everything covered. No, he said, you know what? You have to be diligent to teach your children. There's always a tension between God's sovereign purposes and our responsibility to bring about those purposes. The point here is that the family is essential in God's purpose of blessing all nations through Christ, the seed of Abraham. Parents, those of you who are saved, those who God has chosen and called to salvation, you know what? You're responsible to teach your children to live in accord to God's ways. You're responsible to teach them the importance of prayer. Not just praying over a meal, not just praying before they go to bed, but use that as a tool to pray with them throughout the day. Maybe they're struggling with their schoolwork and they can't get it. Stop and pray with them. See, if you believe that God will answer those prayers, you'll do it. And it's a good model for your own children. You need to pray for individuals, for nations, that God would withhold his judgment and we can give that model to our children. Secondly, prayer must proceed according to the knowledge of God's person. Not only his purpose, but his person. Being a friend of God, Abraham knew, including his character and his attributes. He knew everything that there was to know about God at this point. And that knowledge drew him into prayer. I mean, to the point where he was bold enough to bargain with God. This wasn't a timid prayer. This wasn't a timid conversation between him and God. You can sense it in his words. Hey, Lord, don't get angry, but I'm coming back to you another time. Hey, Lord, you know, be patient with me here. First point there is God's grace encourages us to draw near in prayer. When you first look at this story, it almost looks like Abraham's taking the initiative with God. But the more carefully you look at it, it reveals that the Lord took the initiative with Abraham. Verse 17 to 21, he first broached the subject. In verse 22, he then waited for Abraham's appeal after the two angels left. In verse 24 to 32, he drew Abraham on from down from 50 all the way down to 10. And then ultimately at verse 33, God basically closes up the conversation and said, okay, we're done now. And the picture here is that God was a, almost like a delighted parent holding up his infant and then letting him go and stepping back so that the child has to take a step forward toward the parent. I mean, when your child first takes that step, what do you do? Okay, great, stop, that's it. No, come on, let's do it again. You encourage it. God wants to encourage our hearts to prayer. Now, Abraham's prayer wasn't perfect. He wasn't perfect. He was concerned that if, if, if God struck down the righteous along with the wicked, he was concerned about that. He would look bad in the eyes of the world. See, Abraham erred there. In what God's temporal judgment sometimes falls on both the righteous and the wicked. 
Luke 13, 1 to 5. You can look at that. But the judge of all the earth always does right, no matter what it may seem to our sinful hearts. But even though his prayer wasn't perfect, God graciously kept nudging him along. In the same way, he wants to encourage us through his grace to come before his throne over and over again, knowing that he will receive us as a loving father receives a son. Even if our prayers aren't perfect. It's a matter of the heart. Secondly, God's holiness and power check us from irreverence in prayer. Sometimes I hear people pray and I just cringe. Well, you know, we're, we're here this morning. We, Lord, we just want to address you as the man upstairs. Or, you know, you hear things like that. That's irreverent. We shouldn't address God that way. God graciously receives us as his children, yet we dare not irreverently or brashly come into his presence. He's a holy God who judges all sin. He's all-powerful. He can easily call down fire and brimstone and just wipe us out. But we as his children can come, the Bible says, confidently. Hebrews tells us that we can come confidently before his throne. But at the same time, as Abraham reminded himself here in verse 27, hey, I'm but dust and ashes. Who am I to address you, God? This is the God who spoke everything we see into existence. There's a sense of humility here that Abraham had. There's a sense of humility that's required of us. What's true humility? True humility is simply this, seeing ourselves as absolutely destitute and seeing God as all-sufficient. Seeing ourselves as absolutely destitute. You're at the bottom of the, the bottom. There's nowhere else to go but up. And you see God as your way up. You see God as that all-sufficient provider. See, that's the foundation of true prayer. We don't come to God as a competent people who just need a little bit of help. That's our attitude sometimes, isn't it? I can't figure this out. Maybe I'll go to God now after I've tried and tried and tried. We don't want to go into God's presence and command God what to do, as some of the word, word of faith teachers say. That's wrong. Name it and claim it, that kind of attitude. Oh, God, I command you to do this. I command you to do that. Who do they think they are? See, we come with an awareness of our frailty and our desperate need and with a reverence for God's awesome power and holiness, yet with the confidence that because he is gracious, he will hear our prayers. Thirdly, God's mercy And justice gives balance to our prayers. God's mercy and justice gives balance to our prayers. Abraham was aware that God was both merciful and that he will spare even the wicked on behalf of a few righteous. But he is also just. He sees and will judge all sins, even those done behind closed doors in every sinful city in the world. And this knowledge of God's person, it really tempered Abraham's prayer. Some commentators I read really fault Abraham for stopping at 10, saying that he stopped asking God before 
God stopped giving. But I think that Abraham really sensed that he was at the limit at 10. If he went beyond that, he would no longer be pleading according to God's will, maybe. I don't know. But God answered Abraham by rescuing Lot and his family, even though he destroyed Sodom. See, Abraham's prayer was balanced by his understanding of God's mercy and his justice. See, we we err in our prayer time when we think that prayer is a way to make everything happy, make everyone happy. You hear all the time, oh, you know, so-and-so's in the hospital. Please pray for them. Sometimes I think, well, how should I pray? What should I pray? I mean, the assumption is that you would pray that they would get well, right? But is that God's purpose? Is that God's plan? Perhaps the person or a loved one has been running from God and, and somehow this is illness or this accident, something, you know, maybe, maybe it's there to get their attention. I don't know. Maybe God is graciously trying to reach some other lesson. I don't know. His, his purpose is, is not necessarily that we get instant deliverance from suffering, beloved. Right. See, his purpose is that he may be glorified. We need to remind ourselves of that. And understanding God's mercy and his justice will lead us to pray that God would graciously use any situation, even the death of a mother in a river, leaving two young children. Glorify himself by somehow bringing someone to salvation or in submission to the lordship of Christ. We see that prayer is based on the knowledge of God's purpose. Last thing quickly, prayer must be on behalf of a world under judgment. A few few years earlier, in Genesis 14, Abraham had rescued his nephew Lot. After they had taken him captive, and he returned all their goods to them, even the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah were part of that. And it would be easy for Abraham to see himself here as, as better than those ungrateful, sinful pagans. He could have sat back and said, you know what, they should have learned their lesson. They deserve God's judgment. So many times, beloved, it's easy to look at the sinful world and say, you know what, they deserve what they get. I hope they go to hell. That's not our call. We have to understand that God has left us here with a message of hope and forgiveness and love that surpasses anything they could ever even understand. And that we're here to intercede and, and on behalf of a world that's under God's judgment. Abraham humbly prayed as a sinner on behalf of other sinners. That's how we need to pray. It's easy out of our pride to look down on sinners who are suffering God's judgment and think, you know what, it serves them right. If they would just practice some morality, they wouldn't get AIDS. Or if they didn't worship certain beasts, maybe they'd have some food. It's easy to come to that conclusion. I mean, people are responsible for their sins. Don't get me wrong. They have consequences. I'm simply saying that apart from God's grace, we would all be under his divine judgment and righteousness 
rightfully so. We who know Christ are all fellow sinners. And we've been called out of our sin by God's mercy. And we need to have compassion on others. Do you believe that prayer works? Do you believe that God hears the prayers of a righteous man or woman? In 1872, D.L. Moody made a trip to England and he went there simply to rest. He had no intention of preaching. He just needed, he'd been preaching too long. He just needed to rest. And while he was there in London, uh, a fellow pastor spotted him and asked him to teach the following Sunday in his church. And kind of reluctantly, almost, Moody agreed. Said, okay, I'll preach Sunday morning, Sunday night for you. And he spoke in the morning service. And as he spoke, he said the congregation was literally dead. It's like no response at all. It's like they weren't even there. I mean, this is a powerful preacher. He wasn't used to this. He left the services kind of down and came back that evening. It says when he spoke that evening, the response was completely changed. Completely After the sermon, Moody asked those who wished to become Christians to stand to their feet. He said hundreds stood up. And he thought, you know what? (laughs) Maybe you don't understand what I'm asking. (laughs) Sit back down. (laughs) And he presented the gospel to him again. He said, now, if you want to make a commitment to Christ, stand to your feet. And even more stood to their feet. And he thought, they're not, they don't understand what I'm telling them. He didn't want to just quickly act like they were converted. So he said, you know what? we got a prayer room over here, and we need to come over here, and uh, we'll, we'll talk to you a little further about this. Well, when they got to the, the, the prayer room, they had to get chairs and everything because there's just so many people. He went through the whole gospel presentation again, and everybody was, yeah, yeah, full-blown. We, we want to make this commitment. And he said, you know what? Those of you who are serious about making this commitment, come back Monday night, and the pastor's going to have a special service just for you. They all left. Moody was done. He took his boat ride back to to Dublin. The pastor held that meeting in that church that Monday night, and it was packed. Over 400 people made professions of Christ, more than that were even there the Sunday previous. And when Moody heard of this, because the pastor actually sent him a, a, a telegram saying, you need to come back. You don't understand what's happened. We're overrun. We, we need you to, 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 to continue to preach. God's working. And so he took a boat back. And, and he realized that something happened between Monday morning, or Sunday morning and Sunday night. And he went on and he, he, he preached there for, I think, 10 days. And he sensed that someone must have been praying for this church. And he began asking among the congregation. And finally, he was led to Marion Adelard, who was a bedridden girl. Couldn't come to church. She had some form of, of ailment that caused her just to be twisted and distorted. 
and suffered greatly physically. She spent, as a result of that, many hours in prayer for her church. And she had heard of this man, D.L. Moody, and she began, had been asking God to send revival to her church, but she could never really go because of her ailments. And she heard of this man in Chicago, and she said, Ben, bring this man to my church. Maybe he could reach the church. And when her older sister returned from that lifeless morning service that first Sunday he preached, he told Marion that this man named Moody from Chicago had preached there. She spent the entire afternoon praying, God, this is the opportunity. I'm praying, I'm begging you, God, do a work in the hearts of the people. She prayed daily for the ministry of D.L. Moody as long as he lived. I mean, I don't understand personally why or how God works out his eternal plan in cooperation with our prayers, but he does. Don't ever forget that. Knowing God's purpose to call people for himself from every nation, knowing God's person, that he is both merciful and just. Someday we're going to have a joyful meeting in glory one day. And hopefully we can run into some people who can tell us, thank you for interceding for me. Thank you for praying for my soul. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we acknowledge that prayer does work, that prayer is a wonderful spiritual exercise that, that we need to be involved in more clearly. And Lord, it's easy sometimes in our theology to sit down and understand that your sovereignty and and your power and omnipotence and everything, Lord, is just so overpowering. It's we, sometimes we just throw our hands up and say, hey, you know what? Why even do anything? But that's not what you call us to do. You have chosen somehow to use us mere mortals in your plan, in your methods, whether it's through prayer, whether it's through evangelism, whether it's through reaching out to a neighbor or a friend. Lord, if that wasn't the case, the second we were saved, you'd just jet us out of here. We'd just be gone. We'd be in glory with you. There'd be no reason for us to be here, but there is a reason for us to be here. It's to share the glorious message of Christ, to pray and to intercede for those who have yet to hear, for the lost, for the sick, for the hurting, because you will work through the prayers of your people. And Father, we pray for each individual here this morning. We pray if there's anyone here who's yet to put their faith, their trust in you, Lord, that you will do that work, that sovereign work of salvation through the power of your word and your spirit, that you will show them the sinfulness of their condition, that the only remedy is Christ. The only remedy is looking to the cross. You can't dig yourself out of the hole you're in. It doesn't work that way. You can't pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You simply... Trust in Christ. Trust in God. That's what he desires you to do. Ask him to help your unbelief. Father, we thank you for our time here this morning. We pray that you would just bless us as we depart. And uh, just give us a good day and a good week for you. Pray for our fellowship time afterwards that it would be a blessing. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, thank you for spending time with us here today on Graceful Truth, the ministry of Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. It's our prayer here at Graceful Truth that God would reveal His grace to your hearts through the teaching of His Word each week. 
and we trust you're currently involved in a Bible teaching church in your area. If not, we'd love to have you come and visit us here at Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. We meet each Sunday morning for our praise and worship service at 10 a.m. We offer nursery care and Sunday school classes for our children up to grade five. And if you would like to encourage us here at Graceful Truth, please give us a call at Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. Our phone number is 650-366-9923. That's 650-366-9923. We meet at 2225 Euclid Avenue here in Redwood City. Directions are on our website, gracefultruth.org, or again, simply call 650-366-9923. That's 650-366-9923. And again, we'd love to have you join us for worship. Simply call for directions or go to our website, gracefultruth.org. While you're at our website, make sure to check out the resource materials available from us here at Graceful Truth, including past programs of Graceful Truth that you can download for free. Gracefultruth.org is where to go. If you're writing to us, our address is 2225 Euclid Avenue. That's 2225 Euclid Avenue. We're here in Redwood City. The zip code is 94061. And again, our phone number is 650-366-9923. That's 650-366-9923. We thank you for spending time with us today and trust we'll see you next week at this same time for another broadcast of Graceful Truth with Pastor Steve Converse.